So my name is Alex. I'm the lead pastor here at Corright, and I want to welcome you. If you're here visiting, uh, especially, we hope that you will feel at home among us. Uh, we are in the middle of a sermon series on Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth. We're looking at how the Holy Spirit moves the church to be, to embody, to show forth the love of God in the way that we're called to. And we're picking up that story in the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians. So if you have a Bible with you, you might want to turn there now. But before we start to read, we're going to pray. Let's, let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have not left us without guidelines. You have not left us without a clear indication of who you are, your revelation in scripture. And we praise you that we have an opportunity like this to gather as a community and to listen, to listen through worship, to listen through the ministry of the word, to listen to the good words you want to speak to us. Because we've heard a lot of words this week, and they have been words often that have not been encouraging. They've been words that are just kind of meaningless. But today, right now, we come to you listening for the words of eternal life. So would you speak them to our hearts and our minds? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're reading 1 Corinthians 13, the whole chapter. So Paul ended right before this by saying, and now I will show you a better way. He's listed all of the gifts, and he's talked about the body of Christ, its different parts, and he's saying, this is what I want you to focus on. He writes, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, And if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man... I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. 
Now I know in part, then I shall know, I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord. A few years ago, I was doing premarital counseling with a couple from my former church in Toronto. They'd asked me to officiate at their wedding, and they were friends, and so I was happy, delighted to agree to do that. Eventually, as we came to the end of our counseling, we talked about the wedding day itself. We made plans for what that would look like, and I explained to them that, among other things, I was going to preach a a short sermon, and then it it would be on Leviticus 13 and 14. They knew me well, we were friends, and so they said, sure, whatever you think's best, but I could tell they weren't all that familiar with those chapters. I opened my Bible, just to give them an idea of what was coming, and I read a short summary from the end of Leviticus 14. These are the instructions for dealing with serious skin diseases, including scabby sores and mildew, whether on clothing or in a house, and a swelling on the skin, a rash or discolored skin. They stared at me in complete horror, but they said nothing. I asked them innocently, you wouldn't want to start your married life together without knowing how to deal with skin disease, would you? Again, they did not answer. And at this point, I was hoping for some kind of a reaction. So I said quickly, don't worry, I'm just joking. I will be preaching on 1 Corinthians 13. They were still in shock. They stared at me blankly, so I started into it. Love is patient, love is kind, and there was this huge, enormous sigh of relief from both of them. So this passage we just read this morning is famous as the wedding sermon passage. But really, it's about the church. It's about how God is calling us to love each other as brothers and sisters in Christ and to reach out to others with that same love. In the end, God's perfect, unfailing love moves us to love everyone face to face, even the ones we'd rather avoid. So here in this passage we've read, Paul it's as though Paul pauses in the middle of the meatiest part of his letter to the church in Corinth. Just as he's described how all the parts make up one body and how all the gifts can work together, he stops to show us the key. How does this all actually happen, we might be asking. And these 13 verses are really the climax of his whole letter. From the outset, Paul tells off the Corinthians for focusing on behavior, for trying to prove how spiritual they were, for promoting themselves. And he gets personal about it in a hurry, too. He lists, item by item, their sources of pride. Speaking in tongues came first. This was a way of expressing worship, a personal prayer language, and Paul isn't impressed by that, although he loves speaking in tongues. He says that tongues are useless without love. The same goes for prophecy, the gift of delivering a word of revelation from God which explains mysteries or conveys knowledge based on scripture. Normally, this is Paul's favorite gift, but even for him, prophecy is nothing without love. And the same holds for great faith, as well as for acts of service and self-sacrifice. Like Mother Teresa, someone could give their whole life to serving the poor, but if they're doing it for the wrong reasons, out of guilt or to win the praise of others, then Paul says they gain nothing. The exterior of my life is one thing, but what matters most is on the inside. That's what Paul's saying here. 
But as he talks about love, we might ask ourselves, what kind of love is he referring to? Just this past week, I've heard people reference love in different ways. Someone said, I love corn in the cob. Someone else said, I love summer. Quite a few of us have said, I love Kawhi Leonard. <laughs> Can I get an amen for that? Yeah. I heard someone say, I love Guelph. And then someone said, just this morning, I love you, Dad. That one was my favorite. And once I even caught myself saying, I love hot sauce. To which my daughter Lily sometimes replies, are you going to marry it? (laughs) Let's face it, we are confused about love. It's a slippery word. It can mean many different things, or it can mean pretty much nothing at all. One thing's for sure, despite all the weddings associated with this passage, Paul isn't talking about romantic love here. In the four loves, C.S. Lewis lists the main forms of love. Affection, friendship, eros, and charity. We're going to talk about two of those. This Greek word eros, which may not be familiar to us, It has sexual connotations. It points to a certain kind of love. We get our word erotic from it. But eros really refers more broadly to romantic love. And this is a form of love that gets a lot of attention in our world. The truth is we worship eros love in our culture. And they did in Corinth, too. The biggest temple in Corinth was to the goddess Aphrodite, the goddess of love and beauty and sexuality. But Paul isn't talking about eros here. The word he uses for love in this chapter is agape. And the difference between these two kinds of love is that eros, or romantic love, focuses on its own satisfaction. It's a demanding, attention-seeking kind of love, and it's exclusive. Agape love, on the other hand, is primarily a giving love, a love that puts others first, a love that tries to include them. I don't know how your garden is growing this summer, but ours is flourishing with all the rain. We could use a little more sun, right? But rain helps plants grow. So much of the focus in our gardens, especially if you're into gardening, is on flowers with their bright colors, their flashiness. We love that. I'm a sucker for marigolds. You may not have known that about me. But there's lots of other less noticeable things happening in the garden. Just this past week, I found a maple tree in one corner of our backyard that has gone about its business quietly over the past few years and now is really flourishing. The funny thing is that those bright colored annuals will die out pretty soon. But that maple tree that still doesn't really stand out, it's going to grow up into something amazing. God calls us to focus on the kind of love that lasts, a love that grows into trees, a love that's fruitful, a love that's long-term, a love that's for others. So how are you cultivating that kind of long-term love in your life right now? How can we, how can all of us have relationships that are rooted in a love that wants to give before it receives? 
a love that's not primarily selfish or elitist, a love that doesn't exploit others or look, first of all, for its own needs to be met. Because God calls us to lead lives that aren't focused on ourselves. He calls us together, and I think this is part of the answer to that question of how. We're all asking it, I think. He calls us to be together in communities that aspire most of all to a love that serves others, a love that shares, a love that promotes the common good, a love that breaks down walls. And that is agape love. It's sacrificial love. It's community love. You could think of it that way. And this is what you find at the core of all true love, of love that lasts. Ultimately, this is God's kind of love. And he gives us gifts so that it can be nurtured, most of all, in the body of Christ. And so Paul proceeds to paint this beautiful, famous picture of agape love in verses 4 to 7 of this chapter. It's not comprehensive. This isn't a definition of love. No, what Paul's doing here is offering a contrast to the Corinthians' pride. Their behavior is the opposite of love. They are impatient. They've been unkind to each other. They're envious, boastful, proud, rude, self-seeking. On it goes. And I've got to say that when I read this, as inspiring a picture of love as this is, I feel that contrast too. And I can't be the only one in this room who reads those verses and wonders if I've actually earned my Father's Day bacon that I did get this morning. Because we don't experience this kind of love too often. I think most of the time we're pretty cynical about love. We're disappointed in love. The real kicker in what Paul writes here comes in verse 8. Love never fails. Literally, he says, love doesn't fall down. Who can measure up to that kind of love? I fail at loving my wife, my kids, my friends, you as my church community. I fail at that all the time. All of us are failures when it comes to a love that's this good. But maybe that's what Paul's getting at here. It's only in our weakness, it's only when we're ready to admit how sick we are, that we're actually being honest. I remember a time many years ago now in my life when I had failed to love someone as I should have. And I was, I was reading a collection of short stories by Douglas Copeland at the time. And I came across this, this part of the story which just cut me to the core. He writes, now here is my secret. I tell it to you with an openness of heart I doubt I shall ever achieve again. So I pray that you're in a quiet room as you hear these words. My secret is that I need God that I am sick and can no longer make it on my own. I need God to help me give, because I no longer seem capable of giving. To help me be kind, as I no longer seem capable of kindness. To help me love, as I seem beyond being able to love. And Douglas Copeland is not a Christian, but... What he expresses there is a profound truth that all of us have to face. 
And when we experience this kind of disappointment in love, we have a choice. You can be bitter, you can blame other people, or you can confess that you're sick and you can't make it on your own. Christians call that repentance. It's what realigns us with the kingdom of God. It brings renewal and restoration. And Paul goes on to give us reason for hope in verses 9 and 10. He says that we're incomplete. Now we know in part, but when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. That's the story of our faith. That's the story of Jesus Christ coming among us as the incarnation, the the in-the-flesh reality of God's love. That's the story of perfection arriving and of the fulfillment of love. We're not at the center of this drama that we gather every Sunday morning to retell, to absorb all over again. We cannot love like this. We are all of us failures at what matters most of all to God, at loving him and loving each other. But God knows us well enough and he loves us so passionately that he has sent his son, love embodied, to overcome what once separated us. And Jesus accomplishes that in the ultimate act of agape love when he lays down his life for us at the cross so that we can hear those words we need to hear most of all. You are forgiven. In Christ, you are made new. That's a promise for us when we're struggling, when we have our doubts, when we're feeling unloved. And I love what Paul goes on to write, he says, now we see but a poor reflection. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Perfection has come in Christ, but we only see a poor reflection still. God knows how messed up we are, that we are broken and yet somehow still proud, that we are weak and yet always boasting about ourselves, even if only in our own heads. And in spite of that, he always protects us. He never fails us. He always forgives us. And he loves us completely. Now, friends, that is the best news of all. Jesus knows you. He knows how your love has failed And yet he loves you, as we sang earlier, with a love that will not let go of you. We will know God that way one day, face to face. That is where his love leads us. So how do we practice that? How do we live that out, Courtright Church? I like what Dan White says in his new book, Love Over Fear. Dan White is a pastor and an author, and he writes about how someone at his church decided to leave the church. She told him, Dan, I don't feel safe in this church, knowing there are liberals here who believe so differently than me. I just can't relax and be myself. And then, a few weeks later, a couple came to him with the same concern, but from the opposite side. They said, Dan, we're not sure we're ever going to feel settled here in this church with people who hold such oppressive positions. We need a church that embraces justice. 
He tried to persuade them that the church was a place where both conservatives and liberals could be together, face to face. And he failed. They left. We hate our enemies. And we fear them. It's only natural. When we're threatened or even just offended, the chemistry of our brains leads us to either attack or to avoid, right? You've heard this probably as fight or flight. Those are our natural instincts. We attack those whom we disagree with or we avoid them. We will walk a great distance to not have to see them face to face. And we feel righteous in that. But the gospel always takes us beyond what's natural. God in Christ moved towards us with friendship while we were still enemies. And he sends us out to go and do likewise. The witness of the church would change overnight if it put down the mantle of defending God's reputation and instead picked up the responsibility of loving its enemies. Let me say that again. The church and the way people see Christians in the world would change overnight if we could let go of this need we feel to defend God and his reputation and instead put all of that effort into loving our enemies. Here's the reality, and it's a reality in our denomination right now, in the Presbyterian Church in Canada, one that I felt really powerfully at General Assembly over a week ago. But it's a reality in every congregation also. It's a reality in our wider society too. If you're more conservative and you move towards someone who is liberal or progressive with affection, you will be labeled as someone who compromises on moral issues. If you're more liberal or progressive and you move towards someone who's conservative with warm hospitality, you will be labeled complicit with injustice. But we have reason to be humble. We have reason because we find our true identity in Christ. Christ who was always caught between both of those extremes. Paul tells us that we know only in part. Are we willing to admit that? Are we willing to admit that we see only a poor reflection right now? And what must go with that is humility. We need each other. We need the whole body of Christ. Most of all, we need Jesus. Jesus was labeled all kinds of ways. We don't like to be labeled, right? Jesus got labeled like no one has ever been labeled. And many of the names he was called were not true. And most of all, this was because of his table fellowship. The people he ate with. Jesus didn't only eat with objectionable people, outcasts and sinners. He ate with anyone, from Pharisees to prostitutes. They were welcome at his table. So here's a question for you, and really for us as a congregation too. Who do you need to eat with who is different from you? Who makes you uncomfortable?
How are we as a church doing that? A few years ago, I was in a fight. Not the fight where you punch someone in the face. Not that kind of fight. That last happened in grade nine. I don't even remember who won, actually. So I tell people it was a tie. But No, this kind of fight, the fight that I was in, was the Christian kind, where you smile and you make motions and amendments and you rise on points of order. That's how we roll in presbytery. The presbytery, for those of you who don't know that word, is, is our kind of local geographical area, our family of churches, Kitchener, Waterloo, Cambridge, Guelph. But those presbytery meetings had gotten ugly for me because I was trapped in this conflict with a colleague of mine to the point where I think I hated him. I'm pretty sure I did. I would speak against him in meetings and I'd always have a good reason for it, but I think I had decided that pretty much anything he did, I was going to go after him for. And I avoided him, too. After meetings, if he was over there, I would find the way out of the building that took me a different direction. You ever done that with someone? The final presbytery meeting that year was held here at Courtright, and I was to preach. The minister of the congregation that hosts these meetings always preaches. And I chose 1 Corinthians chapter 1 as my text. And as I read and I prayed over that text, I found myself face to face with the ugliness, not of my enemy, but of my own heart. And the Holy Spirit gave me an idea. At one point in my sermon, I called this colleague of mine up to the front of the church. I'd I'd checked with him beforehand to make sure that he was okay with this. And I sat in a chair opposite my chair. There was another chair. Some of you were here. Do you remember that? So I sat here opposite him, and I'd, I'd read about this. Um, I'd read about this being modeled with Syrian refugees in Europe, and what they did. I read about this in the BBC News. I think they they had a Syrian refugee sit opposite uh, someone who was native to Europe. I guess you'd say who had concerns, reservations, or was actively opposed to all these refugees coming. And they had them sit opposite each other and just look at each other face to face for five minutes, I think it was. And so I I took that idea, and I really felt like the Holy Spirit gave it to me, and, and my colleague agreed to sit opposite me. And we sat there for... I don't know, it wasn't that long, two, three minutes, the most excruciating minutes of my life, it felt like. And we got up, and and he hugged me. And it was good. 
It was profoundly good. So here's my question for you this morning. Who would be sitting opposite you in that chair? There's a promise for us in 1 Corinthians 13 that we will know God face to face one day. That now we know in part, but we are fully known by him. And as we find our peace, our very identity in being known by God, and as we see the beauty and the perfection that is Jesus Christ, we will find that the Holy Spirit will move us to do things that we never thought possible. And forgiveness, most of all, is what makes the heart of God sing. Do you believe it could happen with whoever is sitting opposite you in your mind? Let's take a few minutes to pray and ask the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit who is not mentioned in this passage, to do what might seem impossible. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we admit to you right now that we're pretty used to things being the way they are in our lives. We have grown accustomed to life as an ordinary day-to-day thing. We are comfortable in our routines and also in our prejudices. Lord, I pray that you would move us, that you would open us to the kind of love we read about in 1 Corinthians 13, the kind of love that we see in your son Jesus, who is present here with us this morning. We believe it who is risen from the dead and who longs to come alongside us in whatever we're facing right now, whatever circumstance, whatever difficulty, whatever challenge. And so, Lord, now in the silence, we lift up to you the one we need to love. Maybe there's more than one person. Holy Spirit, would you open the way for us to love as we have been loved. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayers. Amen.